Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Welcome, everyone. Today, my guest is Eric Lappin, president of Form Free, to talk about what's next for the company after the acquisition of Account Check by Stuart Title. Eric, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Great to have you here. Now, we are speaking at from the ICE Experience Conference, and you guys had a big announcement, right? You announced that Stuart has acquired Account Check from Form Free, and you've been promoted to president of Form Free. So that's pretty exciting. Yeah, very exciting. Yeah, thank you. I'm. Uh, I'm it, it's one of those things where, you know, one of the main reasons why I came here was just around why Form Free was started and, and the vision that Brent had set forth years ago over a decade of really putting everything in the control of the hands of the consumer. And it's one of those things that now where we are in the, in the economic environment, as well as if we drill it down more into the mortgage side of things, there's a lot of companies, whether they're lenders or fintechs, looking to become more efficient and really figuring out who their partners are going to be as they wade through these waters. This is a really interesting acquisition because it is coming in and carving out one of your products, right? That they account check, which has been, you know, is, is very well known with Form Free. So tell me why this acquisition made sense to you. Yeah. What was important with us is, uh, you know, account check, you know, becoming the first D1C approved for validation of income and, and or, you know, basically off the asset of the consumer permission data. We wanted to make sure that we consummated a deal with a partner that was strategic in nature and not just a straight venture deal where it was just all about just the math and, and things like that. We're saying, yes, there's got to have that component to it for it to make sense for us as a business. But, you know, who would be a good partner where account check would fit into the family of companies that they already had? Is it something that can fit throughout the life cycle of the business, meaning not just origination, but can it be used in other areas as well? And does it also complement some of the other businesses that are, you know, whether it's a technology company that sits there, is it a, a, a services provider such as, you know, credit or flood or title, things like that, as well as the real estate side of things. So the one piece that seemed to be missing in here was the fact that everything I just mentioned without that as the center of all of it is the consumer. So in this deal, there was a strategic nature for, uh, Stuart, and more importantly, for informative research to roll it into their uh, suite of products. Well, Stuart has been on an M&A tear over the last year or two. So I think this is a really interesting play for them, adding it to their informative research part of the company that they already have. Yeah, I uh, don't know the exact number. I heard it on a call the other day, but I think it was 13 or it was, it's, it's a lot. Maybe even it, more. Yeah. It, that's 18, maybe. It yeah. was quite a bit and a couple more in flight. So um, they just did a recent one, uh, BCHH, which is on the title side, more on the capital market. So, yeah, if you really see the plan in motion for what they were doing, the piece that was missing was was account checks. So, you know, from our standpoint, we're excited because it allows us to um, set forth and execute on the vision of having that consumer, their ability to pay to be dynamically refreshed through a tokenization. And really tokenization just means something representation of value. And it ties into where what you're seeing uh, set forth by FHFA and Director Sandra Thompson, and you're seeing it from the GSEs. How do we help the credit invisible? How do we help the low and no FICO? 
how do we work with that 45 million Americans that don't have that opportunity to get a mortgage loan and doing it in a way that is based off of a credit profile, based off of analytics that provide insights that are uh, around natural language processing that remove bias and really get to the point of, is this a loan that the, from a, from a lender standpoint, is it a loan that is made that makes sense from a net pre- present value? Is it also makes sense for them if they're uh, dedicated to the CRE commitment, CRA commitments that it helps with the community reinvestment. It helps with, um, with just consumers that may have had some things happen in the past where it affects their, their current credit rating. And as we all know, it's, you have to have debt to get into more debt and that's not for everyone. Not everyone has the ability to pay things off in a timely manner. Things happen. You have a death in the family or death uh, or, or loss of job, those kind of things. What about people that don't want to have debt to get more debt? And they say, but look at my cash flow. Look at my discretionary income. I can afford this home. Why can't I have the opportunity to get this home? And we're solving for that. So this is my next question, which is really like, what does form free look like without account check? What is the vision and, and what is it that you, you know, hope to do? Yeah. So we're, um, uh, just to be clear, we're, uh, excited about what we're doing in mortgage, but we also look at it like everything that was built here with Passport and Ricky. And for, for those that don't know, Ricky is residual income knowledge index. It's our proprietary analytics that sit on top of the direct source data from the consumer. And, you know, we're looking at the fact that this is all helpful in mortgage and it helps people get mortgage loans. But what about the consumer side of it? So you have auto, you have, S, you know, SBA, you have merchant cash advance loans, you have uh, digital currency types of lending where you have groups that want to utilize assets that they have with a regulated digital currency, for example, that they want to get cash from there. Um, you have auto, you have student loans. So anywhere that there's lending extended to a consumer, um, the ability to pay that's dynamically refreshed based off their own permission data can be utilized with our, our token, which is Passport. So let's dig into this a little bit because um, it's this is definitely a different way of of doing that kind of, of gathering data. And the consumer is in charge of how much you gather, right? And they own their data or they own that token so that they can then present it to different people. That's correct. So as soon as they provide, it's real simple. It's where do you bank? And they provide that information of, of you know, put in their credentials, their banking information is then harvested through an aggregation method of, of you know, all the, basically open banking. It's open, uh, open finance is what it's part of, meaning you have, you know, thousands of financial institutions that um, that data from the consumer can be aggregated. And then that's where we put our analytics on top of it. But that information is, uh, is, is, is what Passport is, and it's a token. It's the I am is what we say. It's the I am token. It's who I am. It's my financial DNA. I'm unique. It's not, I'm not just a number. It's, I've got some other attributes that need to be considered in this. And that's where the cash flow analysis, discretionary income on top of the income asset employment can be utilized as a token. And me as a consumer can share this with any lender that I want. And then when they like what they see from me from a credit profile and it fits what they want in their portfolio, then an offer is extended. And when the offer is extended and I accept it, now I send my personal identifiable information or the PII is then sent. So it's um so it doesn't, you know, 
run afoul of TRID or anything like that because, you know, you're, you're gathering information, but it's not for a specific property yet or anything like that. Correct. So the way you see it a lot today, and there's a lot of time spent with pre-quals and pre-approvals and shopping for homes. Well, what about up front? If you went to the top of all that, you really started with the consumer saying, here's my ability to pay. Here's my intent to do a loan. Together, I am now a qualified borrower, we call it. So instead of pre-qualified, you're qualified. Now you're underwritable for the lender to work with you. And it's just a better experience for me as a consumer. It's better for the lender because their costs are reduced. The time frame to close the deal is much less. It's something that's been needed in de- for decades in the industry. Absolutely. What has been the uh, lender reaction to this? Uh, it's been a good reaction, really positive. Um, as with anything in business, there's some that adopt a little bit quicker and understand and ask some really thoughtful questions around it. Um, really haven't seen, especially where we are in the last year or so, there's been a lot more openness to like, wow, this is great. All right. So what you're telling me is I can reduce my cost to manufacture this loan, which by the way is what, 11100 uh, this can help with that because a lot of time and effort is is reduced on the front end of it from a pre-qualification standpoint. And even after the loan closes, production of due diligence fees and other types of costs that go into it. So I'm I'm assuming that you have, you know, the way that you've designed the program fits in with what they're looking for, what what's going to be a qualified mortgage, what what a lender is already going to be doing. Correct. They still have their own guidelines and it still has to fit the underwriting guidelines of that lender. But, you know, if I have a Ricky on top of this and then I have a Ricky score or an index that tells me what that number is, and 100 is even a 120, 130, 140 is positive cash flow. Anything under that number is considered deficient of cash. So it'd be harder to, to have a qualified borrower there. Um, all that information is shared. And uh, with the Ricky, it allows these lenders to if they have overlays internally, let's say they don't want to touch anything below a 660, but it's still a saleable loan. This can go in and look at the custody data, the custody data of that bank, that community bank, that credit union, for example. They have a portfolio that they can lend on. What happens with all those borrowers that they have in there already, where you can have this lens, you know, we'd like to say it's another pair of glasses that goes in and says, this borrower can afford this amount. They have the opportunity to do this. And we now see this with Ricky. Because instead of looking at history, we're now looking at where we are today with cash flow. And we're also looking at where we're going with the trend of how that cash flow and discretionary income looks. Hi, this is Diego Sanchez, COO of HW Media. And I'm joined today by Alex Ilazai, Chief Strategy Officer at United Wholesale Mortgage. Thanks for joining us today, Alex. Hey, Diego. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Most forecasters are seeing rates in the fives and the sixes for 2023 and, and 2024, which means we will be in a purchase market for the foreseeable future. Is this good for the broker channel? Yeah, it's great for the broker channel. You know, just assume a rate's at 6%, right? We have temporary buy-down products, just as an example, where you can buy down that product where the first year you're going to pay 4%. Second, you're going to pay five percent, and the third year and beyond, you'll pay the six percent. And by that time, hopefully, you'll probably be in a we'll be in a position where you can refi that loan. Uh, so really, there's just so much opportunity. To me, the way that we think about it, Diego, is like you're dating the rate, but you're marrying the house, right? So you want to go out there. If you see the house that you like, you see the property you like, you you buy it, right? And you worry about getting that lower rate maybe in a you know back half of the year uh, or even next year. But again, it's just going to be a short term thing. The way that we think about it, and still, relatively speaking, we're not talking about massive interest rates, right? I mean, the, the days of the 
the twos and the threes that we were experiencing in, in 2021, that was somewhat of an anomaly. So we expect them to come down a little bit and all the forecasters and economic indicators are pointing that fashion. But right now, I think we're in a good spot and brokers are continuing to win. And you can see it in our broker share and everything that we're doing. We're just having an outstanding start to the year. Alex, thanks so much for joining us today and sharing your insights. Thank you. It's good to spend time with you. In your opinion, is that is that how you feel like you're getting to, you know, maybe serve people who are underserved or have less credit or whatever? I mean, what what's the mechanism there? Because if you're looking at things differently than they've looked at in the past, how does that work? Yeah, in the mortgage business, this is definitely helping the underserved. Um, you know, you have the the low and no FICO, uh, which is the 45 million that we talked about earlier. You know, we did five million loans uh, last year, a little bit over five million loans. And speaking with some of the lenders and some of the analytics that they did on their internal lending profiles and the loans that they either retained or sold, it was very conservative to say that one out of every seven or even one out of every nine. So I took the, we took the conservative one out of nine. One ninth of 45 million is 5 million loans that have a potential to now get a home. Now, again, you still have to worry about do they have a house in the area that they can afford there? And there's other things that come in, but that's a starting point of the opportunity or the addressable market that we're looking at of helping with that. Um, you know, the other thing is, you know, you have a lot of um, a lot in the minority population that is just not considered on certain things because they don't have a certain score or they don't, they don't use credit or they pay it off, or there's just other reasons why that score isn't there. And then, um, you know, with, with helping that you're just seeing a whole, a whole population of people that are now going to be considered and, and, and looking for a home. Now that's on the mortgage side. We also see it to where you have consumers that say, all right, I got my mortgage. I like this. How do I share my information? I want to go, go back to school. I want to get a student loan or I want to buy this car. Those are other things to look at. Now, as we look into the future, you know, the mobile phone is, you know, 90s, was it 96% of people have some sort of a smartphone used in, in industrialized countries. We do a lot of work from there. We do a lot of our transacting from there, whether it's our personal goods, whether it's businesses. And you're seeing a lot of, uh, of people wanting to do the certain things with their data, but they don't want to go to different websites to do them and, and go back into another website. And then you have to download something and then you have to scan it. We're past all that now. I mean, we're at the point now where I'm given my information. And this is where we're seeing we go into the Web3 arena. We're going into... It's not a scary word. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's basically just saying the way that we've seen this in the past is data was being used by large corporations and other types of businesses. And I liked it in some cases where I was getting target ad because they, they saw what I would look for in search and then they would market to me, which is helpful. But it's basically the version of the Internet that's decentralized where, um, you know, big tech is not in the forefront of something like this. They have groups that they're building or they're doing acquisitions or M&A work to bring those companies in. Uh, you know, this part is basically just saying combining where we've been with social media and the use of data, but putting that back into where I, as the consumer, control my use of that data. I'm going to know where it's being sent, how it's being used. And, um, you know, that's where we're seeing the Web 2 plus Web 3 come together Two plus three is five. Now you got Web five. That is the big thing that we're talking about. So it's really just uh, it's just uh, how do you have big tech move forward with standards that are 
designed to move at the speed of what the consumer wants and how data is being harvested and analytics on top of it. Well, and I think this is, you know, one of the the key things that we've been trying to solve in mortgage technology for a long time, because, you know, traditionally you had, you know, people coming in from the tech world going, oh, we're going to innovate, we're going to do this and that, not understanding how difficult it is under the regulatory regime that we have. And I mean, not just federal, but all the state, but all the other things. I mean, it's just a lot harder than it looks. And so I think somebody who can crack that code and, and people have been doing it, you know, here and there, I think that that's really important. On the other hand, when some people hear things like Web.3 or token or yeah. decentralized, you know, they might have um, some fear there. So what do you what do you say to them? Well, the decentralized. So you have a couple of things. You do have the the media that has been talking about blockchain and I say confusing it with that it's only has to do with crypto. And the problem is when you talk about crypto, first thing that comes to mind is Sam Bankman-Fried and FTX and the failure of Celsius and the failure of some of these other companies that were decentralized. Well, the decentralized structure is a structure that makes sense where you have different parties that are able to share information and provide that as as uh, you know nodes or information that are validated by those groups that are allowed to provide that. But especially in the mortgage business, you have to have with that technology, it definitely works and it's helpful, but you have to have what's called instead of the DeFi, you have the CFI approach with centralized finance on top of it. And what that means in the mortgage world and, and the consumer lending world is having a regulatory framework on top of that technology. So it's not like we're going to run like the wild West. Cause when you see, when you leave up the wild West, what happens, things get crazy. Right. So it got crazy. These people start pulling back. Oh, I think this is all a farce. This is a scam. It's not a scam. There are a lot of groups that are that are doing, you know, SEC approved and and uh, you know oversight from the OCC companies like INX and, and and Coinbase and these other groups that have to file. You know, they they get audited by the by the uh, the, the the regulatory agencies that are watching it. When you start doing the true DeFi world, like you were asking earlier, that's uh, that's why you get in trouble. It's just like in, in our industry. I think we have regulatory framework for a reason. Um, obviously, we needed to have it after the crash of 08. But then again, the cost to do the loan went up 3-4x. And now we have a problem with that. So uh, still a lot of work to do there. I don't have a solution on how to get that totally down. But I really do think that if we're if the consumer is controlling their data and submitting that to a lender to have the underwriting done, and I'm removing bias from that, or the you know the lender can make a decision while of, of removing that bias, I'm submitting information that's direct from my account through the tokenization process. And tokenization, simply put, is a representation of something of value. And once that token is sent, and we agree to do business, and that information comes in. Um, and, you know, it just gives me the right to own or share something that's of value. It's precious. I'm now allowing you to have an insight into that because we want to do business together. So that's, I've tried to simplify it, but that's, that's really it all it is. There are a lot of businesses that are doing this today and you're really seeing it more on the consumer side. That's why we also want to go to that area. Um, you see a lot of fintech businesses out there and you see a lot of loans being approved very quickly. But a lot of those loans that are being approved quickly could use analytics that we provide on top of that direct source data and then have that tokenization process included. 
interesting. I would also think that lenders would be very interested to have uh, to, you know, you have data now on all these people who are interested in a loan. Um, you know a lot of things about them. They can, and they know a lot about that. They have the control of their own data. So getting to those people, super valuable. Yeah, great. So form free going forward, what's your passion? What's What excites you about this? Uh, I'm excited about taking everything that has proven out in the mortgage business and gone through the rigor of of the requirements and the audits of getting that day one C approval and, and, and also, you know, approved by AIM for Freddie and, and going through that process of educating and formally working with the lenders, the top lenders in the, in the country that have accepted and adopted this and seeing success with it, taking that to the next level of the technology that's out there already being used in the healthcare area that's already being used and uh, the shipping arenas that you see, the shipping companies are utilizing a lot of this technology. Um, we see it a lot in the, the education systems using it now as well, where that information is being tokenized and shared with with uh, um, around around the world with all different types of certificates and degrees and things that need to be uh, tokenized. So the information itself needs to be shared, but you don't know who it is until until the contract's done. And you know it, that begs another thing. I mean, I love the fact that I mean I've been involved in uh, you know the digital currency and the use cases for dig- distributed ledger technology and blockchain since 2013, really 2012. Um, I think there's a space for it in many areas that it can be used. I don't think it's a one, I don't think it comes in and just changes everything and fixes everything, but I think you're going to see better transparency. You see better security and, and uh, chronologically stored information that when loans want to be underwritten or assigned in a sale or some sort of pool sec- securitization, you could do it a lot easier without having, I like this analogy, my old uh, uh, chief innovation officer where I used to work used to explain it like this. The mortgage business, he said, is like that little that little truck that's on the highway that's got the cages of chickens in the back. And it's, you know, it's hopping up and down with the bad axles and the old tires with no, you know, they're all wear and tear. And it's just going up and down the street and it's bouncing and the chicken feathers are just falling out of the side of the cages on the road. That's the mortgage business with paperwork. You don't know where everything goes. Some stuff's over here. Oh, can you send it to me again? Oh, we can't fund your loan here at the warehouse bank because we're missing this. I mean, it's just, why are we still doing that? We're we're past that now. We've got a lot of smart people in this industry. They've been around. Technology's here. The data's here. The analytics are here. The, The brain trust of all these companies that work with one another. You see a lot of strategic partnerships that are put together. I've said this for years. I say it again. I don't think one company solves all of this. I think it's multiple companies that work together. I think it's lenders sharing their best practices with other lenders. And I think it's removing the fear of, I don't know if we can change this. You can change it. you got to remove the fear. And uh, once you do that and, and, and you see the success, then I see movement. So that's what gets me excited about it. I think we're at a time now that there's more willingness to try something that has been proven in other industries that we haven't seen in mortgage. So it's time to do it there. And I'm also excited to work in other industries outside of mortgage that are uh, paving the way in payments, for example. You know, having payment rails that can be uh, cross-border, they're global. We're in a global economy as it is. Why not my payments? And why do I have to wait a couple of days to have anything settled when it's my money going to somewhere else? They already know they want it. I'm given permission. It should be instant. So that technology is out there. And 
you know, if you can combine bill pay with ACH and wires and Fed now and clearinghouse, and then also have your ability to pay all of that tokenized and sent, valuable. Valuable. And just in time for Gen Z, who is, you know, like, why isn't all of this much easier, much more transparent? You know, why is it still this way? And also to your point, um, you know, if, if you're looking at a lot of minority communities, they do a lot of their banking and a lot of their financial transactions, whether banking or not, on their phone. So anything that you can do to make that that process better, you are already, you know, probably upping the the reach that you have. Absolutely. Agree. Well, Eric, thank you so much for being here. We're excited for you. We'll be looking uh, to see how this plays out uh, in the coming months, but it'll be interesting to see. And we'll have you back on. Yeah, thank you very much, Sarah. Appreciate it. Thank you. Success might look different this year, but it's out there for those willing to work for it. That's why 2023's Gathering of Eagles will focus on forging opportunities, the perfect chance for industry leaders to take a proactive approach to continually move the needle in their businesses and the real estate industry at large. Gathering of Eagles will bring together the nation's top residential real estate CEOs, presidents, and C-level leadership teams to grow, network, and set the pace for what's next in our industry. 2023's GOE is at Omni Barton Creek Resort in the rolling hill country of Austin, Texas from June 18th until the 21st. Learn more and register your spot on the events page at realtrends.com. And we can't wait to see you in Austin. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show or leave a comment. We'll see you back here on Monday for more news and insight.